the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Thank you, sir, and a good afternoon to you. Welcome to this Wednesday edition of Lifeline. What day is today? This computer's supposed to give me the day of the week, and it forgets that people get my age. They forget that it's Wednesday, the 12th. Of July, right? Thirteenth. <laughs> See there. What can I? You can't. You can't. Well, what, first thing I'll tell you: you can't rely on everything talk show hosts tell you, right? <laughs> well, again, great to have you on board for another edition of Lifeline. A little bit later on in the program tonight, we're going to speak with certified life coach and best-selling author Michelle Stifes, who's written a new book that I think will be of particular interest to parents as they train up a child, and as we've seen these horrific outbursts of violence in recent months, referring, of course, to some of these these horrific recent shootings, and we wonder to ourselves, why are teenagers so angry? And a lot of us are frustrated these days with a lot of good reason, but are there tools that we can equip our children with to help them better manage their emotions so that they don't erupt into vits of violence that ultimately end up costing innocent lives. We'll talk about that a little bit later on in tonight's program, but I want to first deal with the big elephant in the room. You know, we're in a season now here, full into summer. We want to be out and about. We want to be enjoying our time off, spending time on vacation, things of that sort. If I broach the topic of COVID, you'll probably say, I'm tired of hearing about it, or it's summer, don't bother me, or I've already been infected, so it's not my concern, or I've had a vaccination, so why even address it? Well, here's a good motivating reason why. The COVID subvariant known as BA5 is now prompting growing concerns across the United States and especially in major metropolitan areas such as our own. On average, we're seeing right now, and if I told you this in the context of an airplane crash today, and claim the lives of 300 Americans because they forgot to put fuel in the tanks, you would say that's terrible, that's an outrage. 350 lives could have been spared if they'd just done the right thing. Well, right now we're seeing the same thing. 300 to 350 deaths per day in America because of COVID. And, of course, one of the important tools we have available to us is vaccination. But are we getting vaccinated to the greatest degree that we should be with booster shots? Well, to help unpack all of the, the details of this latest subvariant of 
the coronavirus. Professor John Schwartzberg joins us, clinical professor emeritus at UC Berkeley. He is professor emeriti academy, School of Public Health, Division of Infectious Diseases and Vaccinology, and chair of the editorial board with the UC Berkeley Health and Wellness Publications. And Professor Schwartzberg, thank you so much, doctor, for being with us. Let's kind of unpack this. I'm getting sort of the sense that, you know, it's funny, in the early days of COVID, there were references to, this is just like the flu. And and while we know to the greatest degree the death rate was significantly more fearful than the seasonal flu, there does seem to be, at least from the, the novices, the amateurs' viewpoint, a, a little bit of a perhaps legitimate comparison here, and that is the ability of COVID to morph like the seasonal fuel that flu, that two strains are, are, are never identical. But I, I guess the big question is, how is it that this thing is being able to keep pace ahead of vaccinations as quickly as it apparently is? Yeah, that's a terribly important question. Uh, this virus is able to change its nature very, very quickly. And we've seen it from the beginning, but it seems to be accelerating now in the last seven months. So, you know, we, we saw it go from one Greek letter to another Greek letter, and then finally in, on December 1st, we were visited with a new Greek letter, Omicron. And what Omicron has done, which none of the other variants have before it, like Delta and Alpha, Omicron keeps changing. It gets more transmissible, and it's, that is, it's easier to go from one person to another than its predecessor, and is able to evade the immunity we get from vaccination or previous infection better than its predecessors. So Omicron went from BA.1 to BA.2 to BA.2.12.1. It gets crazy, and then BA.4, and now, as you said, we're with at BA.5. And with each of those changes, all in the last seven months, the virus has become more transmissible and more immunovasive. It's really a devil to deal with. Now, there is a little bit of a silver lining in a sense, and that is that even though we're seeing these huge spikes in both variants and apparently, at least with this most current form, uh, transmissibility, we're not seeing anywhere near the death tolls, or if there are hospitalizations, they're not as severe or not as lengthy. So in that regard, it seems as if the efforts toward creating the vaccination and getting as much of the population vaccinated as possible seems to be working. But I guess the one question on the minds of all of us, we were hoping that this would be the vaccination delivered. We'd start to see it finally wane out. And I would suppose even some folks, even within your your profession, were hoping maybe that by this time we would be talking about coronavirus in the past tense. This is going to be with us for a while. I guess the big question is, is there any sense, is there any yardstick, Professor Schwartzberg, that can be used by virologists to get a sense of how long this is potentially going to continue in the future? Meaning, is this to stay with us for a long time to come? Well, I wish I had better news for you. But I think that we have to be quite sanguine about this. Um, the virus is going to be with us uh, for a long, long time. And the reason I say that is because it, the immunity we develop toward this virus is not permanent. You know, if you get measles and you recover from measles, you're not going to get it again. 
But if you get COVID, you're now seeing people get it a second and third time because our immunity wanes, whether it's immunity from previous infection or immunity from vaccination. So that's one reason I think it's going to be with us a long time. Another is that this virus is also capable of infecting non-humans, lots of different other primates, and lots of other different animals can get infected with this. And that means that there's a reservoir for this virus outside of humans that could jump back to humans, even if we got rid of it in humans. So I think that we have to plan, um, and I hope I'm wrong, but I think we have to plan that this virus is going to be with us for ourselves, our children, and our grandchildren. But that doesn't mean that we can't deal with this virus. It just means that we're going to have to be contending with it. And that also suggests, I think, and we can unpack this a bit more after the break, Professor, but it also, I think, suggests that we can't really let our guard down. As I hinted to in my opening remarks, there is a sense as we're well two, two years plus into this collective global experience that Americans and, and everybody, for that matter, are growing tired or perhaps uh, never really fully believed in the threat in the first place and so have been lackadaisical about getting vaccinated or protecting themselves through hand washing, social distancing, masking, things of that sort. Add to that a list of people that say, well, I got the first vaccination. I, I'm good to go. Uh, I mean, they've never called me in to get another measles vaccination. So why should this be any different? You've kind of addressed that in your previous remarks. And then add to that some folks that perhaps are lulled into a sense of false security because they've been infected and think, well, my natural immunity is going to protect me. And of course, the one thing that we're concerned about here, and that is that as this continues to morph, while yes, we might see a drop in severe cases in terms of ventilation is not required, you're not, um, you know, winding up from hospital to morgue, but this observation related to so-called long COVID and degrees of which we don't really fully understand what the impact of this is going to be on on the human body five years out, ten years out. And I would imagine that from a virologist standpoint, that's got to be particularly troubling. It is. In, on a personal level, you know, I'm well over 65, so that puts me in a high-risk group for having a bad outcome if I get COVID. But I don't really worry so much anymore about winding up in the hospital or, or dying. It could happen, and it does occasionally to people that are, that are my age. But the reason I don't worry so much about it is because I'm up to date with all of my vaccines. I've had four. That gives me enormous protection. And on top of that, if I still got COVID, there are medications I can take now, for example, Paxlovid, that can really prevent me from getting so sick I wind up in the hospital. So those things have given me a great deal more confidence in facing COVID now. But what I still worry about, and I'm so grateful that you mentioned it, is I don't want to get long COVID. I don't want to be in a brain fog for the rest of my life. I don't want to be limited by how well I can breathe or how well I can think or how well my heart works for the rest of my life or maybe for many, many months until it gets better. So long COVID is really something I think people tend to forget about, but please don't because it can really disrupt your life and it could really just make it a miserable 
time for yourself. And Professor, to to the heart of your point, and that is that there's been sort of a traditional sense of this, that, well, the younger you are, the greater your ability to bounce back. And so, therefore, the lesser the severity and the older you get as, you know, the, the just the overall ability of the body to do its functions, to do its job, uh, becomes diminished as a part of the aging process, uh, there's a higher risk. Well, to be sure, but I would imagine then part of the concern here uh, in sort of reading between the lines of what you're saying is that, you know, if you're 80 and you get it, your lifespan might only be taking you out to 85 or 90. But what about a person in their 50? who gets it, maybe gets reinfected, bounces in and out of of the COVID experience, and now in dealing with long COVID, the impact to brain capacity, breathing capacity, heart capacity could be something that you're going to have to contend with for 30 years. So a diminished quality of life for a prolonged period of time, all because we thought we had one vaccination, so we're one and done, or we were exposed to COVID, got over it, and therefore the natural immunity is going to protect us. There's there's really, and in, in, in I guess in, in a real sense, from a medical standpoint, at least in the last 100 years, to my reading knowledge, historical medical knowledge, that this is really, in, in some respects, a game changer, is it not? Well, COVID has certainly been a game changer. You know, we, we dealt with influenza in 1918-1919, which was also a game changer. But this has really turned the world upside down for everybody. You know, I'm, I'm so glad you're emphasizing long COVID, but it's, I'm also glad that you mentioned about somebody who's 50 years old and otherwise healthy. It may shock your listeners to know that COVID is the leading cause of death in people 45 to 55 in the United States. Ouch. Not because, it's because people 45 to 55 are in usually very good health and don't tend to die. But COVID can take those people's lives. And one other thing I wanted to point out that you're, you're also hinting at, and that is most recent statistics show that if you're not vaccinated and you get COVID, you have a 42 times higher chance of winding up in the hospital than somebody who's up to date with their vaccinations at any age. So vaccines make an enormous difference. It may not protect you from getting cold-like symptoms, or they may not protect you from getting flu-like symptoms from COVID, but they will protect you against getting hospitalized and dying. And that's a key point that I think folks need to be mindful of. If you just joined the conversation, our visit in this segment of the program with Professor John Schwartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus at UC Berkeley, Chair of the Editorial Board, UC Berkeley Health and Wellness Publications. He's also served at Professor Emeriti Academy, the School of Public Health, the Division of Infectious Diseases and Vaccinology. So he is uniquely qualified to address these issues today. And I think it's important to underscore um, just how significant this is. And, you know, we've kind of, for, for folks that historically resisted the vaccine and have been able to sort of dodge the proverbial bullet, um, time may be running out for you. For others that say, well, I've got natural immunity. I've had it. I'm one and I'm done. Yeah, maybe not so. And so being more vigilant when it comes to addressing this issue. Now, if your longevity, if your quality of life are matters of none concern and you don't really care if you check out earlier than otherwise might have been in your uh, normal lifespan or 
that the quality of life is not as good as you age because of the impact of COVID and that doesn't really bother you, well, then to each his own. Uh, For the rest of us, however, that would like to be around a while for our kids and grandkids and would like to, during that uh, portion of time, enjoy quality of life, then I think it's important we pay attention. We'll unpack more of this topic after this quick timeout here on the Wednesday edition of Lifeline from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. So uh, just when you think you're out of the woods, kind of the uh, the subtopic of our discussion today with Professor John Schwartzberg, we have seen, as we delineated prior to the break, an increase in deaths. Uh, on average in America today, 300 to 350 people, largely all unvaccinated. We've also seen a number of cases of reinfections. And I guess that goes, Professor Schwartzberg, to part of the point that you were making before, and that is that in addition to not really um, knowing just yet what the cumulative impact of all of, of COVID is going to be over a long time, we also don't know, or long term rather, we also don't know what the cumulative impact may be on one's body if you have been infected and then reinfected. Professor, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. You, you made reference to um, one of the uh, treatments, the uh, Plaxlovid. Um, I, I've heard some stories of cases where people have taken a regimen, tested negative, then in a short period of time tested positive again. Is that a dosage issue? Is there anything you can speak to regarding the effectiveness of Paxlovid? Sure. The, we call that rebound, and we're seeing it in between 5 and 10% of people who take Paxlovid when they have acute COVID. That is, anywhere from a few days after they finish the Paxlovid and they've gotten well to maybe a week or 10 or 12 days, they get a recurrence of their symptoms. Usually it's about the same or milder. No one's gotten really, really seriously ill, but they get a recurrence of their symptoms and they test positive again so they're contagious again. So that rebound is, is um, disturbing to see. We don't know why it's occurring. We haven't seen any evidence that the virus is becoming resistant to Paxlovid, so that doesn't appear to be the case. It may be, as you just said, that we're not taking it for long enough. Maybe we need to take it for 10 days as opposed to five, for example. So we're continuing to study this, and I think we'll get some answers over the next few months. I read something today, Professor, that suggested that we might see also a difference in the efficacy of Paxlovid uh, or, or just cases even of, of reinfection or, or time to recover based on varying blood types, that somehow certain blood types seem to be a bit more resistant to COVID than others. Any insight you can offer in that arena? This has been um, something that's been bannered about since very early in the pandemic. Um, we found, for example, people who are blood type A seem to be more predisposed to getting COVID, or at least more predisposed to getting significantly sick from COVID than people with other blood types. But other studies haven't confirmed that. So I'd say that we really don't know for sure. Um, we, uh, so I, I wouldn't, if I'm, I'm blood type A and I'm not worrying about it, for example. So I think the literature on that is soft. Final question for you. We know that recently Alameda County 
reinstituted an indoor mask mandate. That subsequently has been lifted as we're beginning to see these spikes in cases, both between reinfections and even the number of hospitalizations, while nothing significant to worry about. Nevertheless, it seems as if for the moment, public health officials seem reticent to impose mask mandates once again. But setting aside sort of the political angle of all of this, from the medical standpoint, what is your recommendation? How should we behave right now during this period of time when we're, as we've been discussing, seeing COVID morphing as quickly as it apparently is? Right. Well, it, as we discussed, it's very, very common right now. So it's hard to avoid this virus unless you're being very careful. And one of our best tools is wearing a mask. So here's what I do. Um, if I'm outside taking a walk with my wife, we don't wear a mask. If I was outside and for some reason I got, there were a lot of people around me, I was pretty crunched together with a lot of people around me, I pulled my mask out of my back pocket, which I always carry with me, and put it on at that time. If I'm indoors in a public space, let's say the grocery store, for example, I won't go inside without a mask on. I don't see why I want to, I, I don't want to take the chance of getting infected with COVID. And I know the mask will help protect me with that. And it's not much, it's not very difficult for me to just wear that mask. So that's what I do right now. And I think that's good advice for most people. And certainly some other behaviors like uh, thorough hand washing, uh, things of that sort would continue to be recommended? Sure. You know, we don't know how important um, hands are in the transmission of this virus. Um, we know it's certainly not as important as the air is in terms of transmitting the virus. But good hand hygiene makes a lot of sense, especially during the pandemic. Um, also, social distancing, as you mentioned earlier, trying to not be real close up to other people. Because, if you know, a lot of people are infected with COVID and have no symptoms. They don't know it. So they may not be taking any precautions, but they could still infect you. We've also heard stories just in terms of of good hygiene practices that this new variant seems to have a greater survival rate on surfaces, which maybe goes again to that notion of just, you know, cleaning your hands frequently, 20 seconds, soap and water, uh, don't touch the doorknob and then go and, you know, scratch your eye, things of that sort. Does that continue to be uh, wise counsel? Oh, of course. Um, The Achilles heel of this virus is that soap kills it. So if you have soap on your hands for 20 seconds, that virus is not going to survive. All right. Good advice. We appreciate so much, Professor, you taking time to uh, keep our audience informed and, and safe. There is Professor John Schwartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus, UC Berkeley and Professor Emeriti Academy, School of Public Health, a Division of Infectious Diseases and Vaccinology. Professor John Schwartzberg, again, thank you so much, Professor, for your insights and the time. 531 from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back with you. And, you know, if you look at what's been going on, particularly with the young generation, and we've seen some horrific examples of this in recent months, unfortunately, that have led to horrific public acts of violence, you might conclude that a lot of young people are out of control (laughs) if they were ever in control. 
And, you know, uh, not to forgive bad, severely bad behavior, but there are sets of emotional circumstances that our young people today are facing that, that we older adults, baby boomers and and what have you, uh, didn't have to grow up with. I mean, every generation has its 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 bumps and challenges. And you know, if you're you know uh, somebody who lived through the Great Depression, World War II, going through Vietnam, we've all seen it. But then you you combine what's happening in recent years, what between political strife and we've spent a half hour talking about COVID, and then add to that. Um, the other just day-to-day pressures that young people experience, is it any wonder that they seem to be entirely out of control emotionally? Well, our next guest has um, authored a new book that perhaps can provide some insights on how to help young children manage <coughs> pardon me, their emotions in a more effective means. The book is called The Machine Inside Me, How to Change Your Brain and Discover the Power Within, newly published by Credo House. And uh, great to have on the program with us, corporate trainer, certified performance, life coach, best-selling author, Michelle Stifus. Michelle, it's always great to have you with us. Thank you, Craig. It's great to be back. Wow. Uh, you know, I, I guess all of us have had uh, in, in recent years cause to be on edge. Um, but we as adults, we're more experienced at life. Perhaps we've finally learned how to manage our emotions a bit better, though certainly not. A, that doesn't apply to all adults. But young people that, that don't have the skill set, that don't have the life experience, the emotions come. They just kind of roll with the punches, so to speak. And sometimes it can have devastating results. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's been terrifying for me to watch it happen, especially over the last two years. Uh, in fact, uh, according to the CDC, there's a 51% increase of suicide in girls uh, just in the last couple of years, and that's in comparison to 2019. So we've really got a problem, and it starts when they're young, as you had mentioned at the beginning in the intro of the program. But if we can really begin to give them some insights on how to function in those emotions more effectively, I think we can head some of those issues off at the path. And let's talk about doing that. I mean, again, parents sometimes are not all that well uh, equipped to manage their own emotions. Kids act up, parents uh, respond in kind, and there's suddenly an escalation. But in particular, when young people, and we've talked about this, Michelle, in the past, where young people are being exposed to varying degrees of violence now that's in almost every form of entertainment. I mean, to go and look for the Lawrence Welk style of, of, of life or entertainment anymore just seems to be a bit of uh, you know nostalgia and nothing more. But for kids that see these messages, it trains the brain to a greatest degree, and then all of a sudden they're, they're, they're acting out when they're, when they're acting up, and I'm curious as to what kind of tools we can provide children so that they get a a, a better sense of how to identify what these emotions are, what they mean, and most importantly, how to respond to them. Well, you hit the nail on the head. It's really how they're programmed. And and this book, uh, Machine Inside, kind of takes that approach, but in a fun, easy-to-understand way. So we talk about what a neuron is. We talk about how we wire in thoughts through the neural networks, and there's diagrams and over 75 illustrations in the book to help them to really get a grasp on what's happening inside of them. And, you know, the other thing that you had mentioned is that well-meaning people in their lives don't always understand what they're going through and aren't quite able to help them process what they may be feeling. 
So what the book does is it, is it equips them to not only understand how they're wiring it in and gives them some comparisons of how the negative thoughts versus the positive thoughts may be affecting them long term, but it gives them answers and solutions on how to rewire. I've got a whole chapter dedicated to just doing small changes because it's the little things done every day over time that make the biggest difference. Building in those new habits and those new ways of thinking. And then my favorite part of the book is in chapter three when we talk about the neurochemicals. And and we do have the big names in there and we show them how to pronounce them like dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, GABA. But we've got cute names on them like Dopey, Sarah, Oxy, and Gabby. And we show them how these little characters play a role in our lives when the neurochemistry is released with every thought. So with every thought you have, a chemical is released in your body. So Dopey, Sarah, Oxy, and Gabby give you happy feelings. So when you do things like gratitude or kindness or, you know, uh, things that would build you up or build another person up, you can release those chemicals and you're in charge of that. On the other hand, you've got cortisol, adrenaline, and norepinephrine. And we name those court, adrenaline, and norepin. And we go through the list showing those, the damage that can be done, like tummy aches and food allergies and illnesses and not being able to sleep at night and, you know, feeling depressed or anxious or uh, not being able to fight off illnesses. Even hyperactivity, restlessness, all can come from too much release of these chemicals. So I know that's a lot to say in a short amount of time, but I really want the audience to understand that these are things that once they learn them, there are methods that can be put into play that begin to reverse that whole process, rewiring their brain and giving them a whole new set of neurochemicals that are released at will. And I think it's un- important for listeners to understand that there's a there's a deep spiritual dynamic here, and we see certainly lessons in Scripture, uh, Philippians four, which you use in the book. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things. Scripture encourages us to take or hold every thought. Captive, And when you combine that spiritual dynamic with the science, you know, we know of people, for example, that have been stroke victims, that following the, their stroke and the recovery process, they will oftentimes, dependent upon the severity of the stroke, have to relearn certain functions and behaviors, how to use a hand again, how to, how to write, how to speak, again, suggesting that, that the brain is something that, that, that is constantly in a state of being able to to recreate itself that it can it can learn things even as we grow older and we discover how quickly it can also forget things but this notion of then essentially retraining the brain when we feel certain emotions as to what the response to those emotions ought to be is really key to this isn't it it certainly is and it'll help them to kind of have something to you know hang on to. So it's not just somebody saying, oh, you know, don't do that. It's more like, if you do this, this is what will happen inside of you. This is what's producing the negative dialogue. So you're right. We do need to rewire, and no matter what age you are, this book could really probably help. But the spiritual side is also very true. In fact, in Proverbs 23.7, it says, as a man thinks, so is he. Mm -hmm. So what are these kids thinking about day in, day out? You know, what are they listening to? What are they filling their heart and mind with? And what are they saying to themselves? Because sometimes it's that inner dialogue that can take us down the fastest. 
So we have young minds that are impressionable, that are still developing, that are still trying to figure all of this out. And then you add to that some of the complexities of the stressors that have been present in recent years, as we touched on earlier, and and can really be a a volatile scenario here. And so the, the notion then through books like The Machine Inside Me is to help parents help kids understand what the what the emotions and feelings are, what they mean, and most importantly, how to manage all of this. And in some cases, um, help a child, I guess, that's kind of stuck in that place where they've they've gone through the trauma. Now they don't know how to get out of the, sort of this 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 endless loop, so to speak. So this exactly. really helps them to kind of break that cycle. Yes, I'm glad you said that because I think this book in the hands of parents could give them enough insights to be able to help build an environment for the child so that they can have more productive habits and better thoughts. And I just want to make mention here real quick, Craig, before we run out of time, that this book has been reviewed and endorsed by an ITR certified trauma support coach, a PTSD trauma support coach, a 30-year educator and author of Does My Child Have PTSD? So this book has some very solid features to it, and um, I really believe it can make a difference. And I think it's important for listeners to understand, too, we're not just talking about the science, though we're talking about the science. We're not just talking about the spiritual dynamics, though we're talking about the spiritual dynamics. It's all of it. And it's not only helping to equip parents with the kind of skills that they need to train up the child, but also, most importantly, equipping children with the the skills that they need um, to help them learn how to identify manage emotions, and grow up into healthy, productive adults that don't decide to respond to an insult by, you know, drawing a weapon, things of this sort. So, you know, there's a lot of recent examples all around us to demonstrate uh, that this is a growing issue in America today, and we need to start dealing with it. And particularly if you're the parent um, or grandparent of a younger child or a, a school-aged child that's struggling with some of these issues, you might find a lot of the answers that you seek right inside the machine, inside me, how to change your brain and discover the power within. And while it's benefit to kids, uh, quite frankly, it's benefit to folks of all ages. Now, this is not a commercial But God bless Michelle. Um, Just to help out KFAX listeners today, if you um, hop online to uh, her website, you can order the book at a discount. The uh, normal price tag on this, if you go and buy it through the regular channels, is $10.99 a copy. But because you know KFAX, you can get it for just $6.99, a real deal. And uh, Michelle, if folks want to order the book, where can they go to do that? Well, we've slashed that price on Amazon, available today only. So your uh, audience will need to get on quick today, and they can order as many as they want and bless the children in their lives. We'll keep that price on for the rest of the day. Fantastic. So uh, jump online to Amazon.com. And again, the book that you're looking for is The Machine Inside Me, How to Change Your Brain and Discover the Power Within, discounted uh, through the balance of today for KFAX listeners. But you need to jump online and to do that before midnight tonight. So we're going to start the stopwatch. We're going to give you six hours and 13 minutes to get it done. How's that sound? <laughs> Michelle, Steinf- thanks so much for your time and the insights. And um, we'll look forward to talking to you again real soon. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. Well, a page out of the book entitled Don't Say I Didn't Tell You, New York. New York City has announced today, New York State actually, is um, giving grant money to abortion providers 
in the wake of the Supreme Court decision to uh, return the decision-making on the matter of abortion back over to the states. They have created what they're calling the, quote, Abortion Provider Support Fund. They're going to be sending checks to some 13 organizations. Money will be used to expand operations because the governor is expecting an influx of -of out-of-state residents seeking abortion-related services. Sounding familiar? New York is also going to plan a second phase of this grant giving that will be an additional $15 million of tax money to abortion clinics across the state. And you got to believe if they're doing that in New York City, they'll be doing that here in California real soon. Last week, Brian Johnston joins us, joined us to kind of pull back the cover on SCA 10, this um, constitutional amendment that... Um, we want to continue to harp away at in a in a positive way uh, because we need to be mindful about just how potentially dangerous all of this is. Brian joins us now. He is the Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee and host of Life Matters. Heard Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. I mean, we we could we I think we did in a roundabout way, Brian, predict that this is going to happen in in blue states. It certainly has been happening in California, and now the same thing in earnest in New York. Yes, Craig, and I think it's very important that we, as both participants, but also as observers of the civic process and getting this news over the news wire, that we recognize what C.S. Lewis has asked everybody to think about, and that is the power of language, and how language is very often intentionally twisted, and very often twisted with the opposite result from its implied meaning. And one very specific example will be here in California. Here in California, there is a, a Medi-Cal safety net for women. People don't realize it. That's how it's presented. It's for women. It's a safety net for Medi-Cal. What they don't fully explain is it's, it's not actually for women. It's a funding program. The safety net is for abortionist funding. Now, in California, if you want an abortion, one of the first things they're going to say is, well, that's going to cost some money. How much money do you have? And if you have access to a checkbook personally, or maybe even the father of the child does, well, then write this check for the full amount. That's what the abortionist wants. However, if you don't have that personal money, maybe somebody can help you get it. Okay, somebody's not going to help you get it. All right. How about insurance companies? So the next step is the insurance companies. Anyone who's involved in the auto repair industry knows that. Auto repair industry people, that money doesn't go to you when you make an insurance claim. It isn't really your safety net. The auto insurance industry pays off those repair industry. And that's how it is in abortion that the abortionists know where to get the money. Finally, in California, people don't understand this. If there is no other financial option, the state of California says, well, we can make you eligible for Medi-Cal. It's the safety net. But it's not a safety net for women, because that same abortion is still just as dangerous. It's not safer when it's legal. And that's been demonstrated many times many times 
in the last 30 years. It's been very common for safe and legal abortions to be proved that they're not safe. Abortionists have to go in blind, and they probe around. Sometimes they will use they will use a Doppler test. They will try to find that baby because they're on a hunt. But they're using a very sharp scalpel to scrape that mother's uterus. It is dangerous inherently. A safety net. Oh, yes, there's a safety net in California of financial resources. Your tax money is available through Medi-Cal. If they can't bill some other providers, they're going to get money. And that's been the case for quite a while. As you and I discussed last week, there's incredible terror that Roe v. Wade's been overturned, and the media at large, and of course the abortion industry, and of course the Democrat Party, which sadly, again, I think, I know that I was once a Democrat, there were reasons for that, but we won't go into that. But as Ronald Reagan said, I didn't leave the Democrat Party, the Democrat Party left me. The ter- current Democrat Party is agitated to the greatest degree I've ever seen it regarding abortion in California. Now they put on the ballot this fall every driver in California. If you have a driver's license, (laughs) you're going to get a ballot at your address that tells you to vote. And the very first issue is Proposition 1, which had been in the Senate as a constitutional amendment. It passed more quickly than any bill has ever passed in the history of the state. That was introduced and passed through both houses in 24 days. Through the committees, everything was needed. Bang. It's now on the ballot. It gives unlimited abortion rights. There will be no parental notice. There will be no restrictions of late-term abortions. There will be nothing able to be done by the legislature because it will be in the Constitution. Yeah, that, that's the, and that, that really is the digging point here that, you know, they they uh, they kind of got crafty. They looked at this and said, you know, we, we can codify this in the Constitution, which means if even if there's an outrage amongst California voters and we see a shift in the makeup of the California state legislature, wouldn't that be nice? Um, yeah. No legislature would be able to pass any legislation to change it short of a constitutional amendment, and they're doing that with great intentionality. That's exactly right. They are they are desperate to make sure what they have gotten uh, stays in place and that you will not ever be in the correct. We would need, if it passes, we would need to pass another constitutional amendment. Very difficult to do. Getting that two-thirds majority they got through deceitful language. Again, I cannot leave out your need as a listener to, to what happens in civics. Please listen to the language used. That's what we're urged to do in Scripture as well. If you're a Christian, listen carefully. Test the spirits. Make sure that what is said is actually true and not, in fact, Orwell talk. Because that's what's happening now. What they're promising is actually the opposite of what they're implying. That safety net isn't for women. It's actually for the abortionist. And by the way, one of the things that will be already made evident in the bills, they've already said every abortion is legal. That's a statement from the ACLU at the last hearing on AB 2223. There's no such thing in California law as an illegal abortion. 
And Justice, excuse me, Senator Shannon Grove said, what? That's right. That You're using old language. Any abortion, by virtue of the fact that it's chosen, that's legal. And, of course, that would include self-abortions. That would include abortions done by non-physicians. That's how radical their actual goals are. And you won't be able to do anything about that. Because unlimited right to an abortion will be in the Constitution. And, you know, to that point, Brian, the, um, the fact of the matter is, and I use that story intentionally related to what's going on in New York City right now, that they're going to codify it in the Constitution, and then they're going to say, because it's in the Constitution, we have to support it, and then the legislature is going to continue to give out our tax dollars like candy in order to support people coming in from other states, just as you've witnessed in the story out of New York. $15 million in the second round, a current round coming up. They didn't disclose what the dollar amount was, but you're going to bet that it's more than five cents, just so they can make sure that people coming in from other states can receive abortions at the expense of New York taxpayers. Wow, wow, we. So, uh, yeah, be on the lock, lookout. That's going to be um, Proposition 1 that's going to be on the top of the ballot come November. Brian Johnson discusses these issues with greater detail every Saturday morning at 11 a.m. on Life Matters. We invite you to tune in for that. Meanwhile, you can get more information about the great work of the California Pro-Life Council online at californiaprolife.org. That's California Pro-Life. Org. Six o'clock from KFAX. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.